Father, we do want to just lift up our nation, the fires going on, the chaos going on, the, the COVID. Lord, would you bring an end to all of these things, Lord? Would you bring an end to these things for your glory? And Lord, until that time that you do bring an end to these things, would you use these things for your glory? Would you place an urgency in our hearts to reach out to people that are, you know, unbelievers that don't know you, even as these days are growing darker and darker and we're closer to your soon return, Lord. Give us an urgency. And Lord, we do want to just pray for our church as a whole. Just your hand of blessing upon the church, your hand of blessing upon the ministries within the church, your vision, your guidance, your direction. Lord, just wisdom for how you would have us uh, use the tithes and offerings that are brought to you. Lord, just give us wisdom. And Lord, we also just now pray for our Bible study, Lord. Would you just speak to our hearts, Lord? Speak to our hearts, Lord, through this, this chapter in Genesis, chapter 22. Lord, we look to you and just pray you would teach us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So, like I said, this evening we come to Genesis chapter 2. And in my mind, you know, there are key books of the Bible that every Christian should be familiar with. You know, I, I would include Genesis, Isaiah, Daniel, um, Gospel of John, Romans, Hebrews, Revelation. Those are books that I think are, are really key. And then there are also these very important chapters, these key chapters in the Bible that each one of us should be, again, familiar with. I think of Genesis 1 through 3, you know, the creation and fall of man. I think of Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, John 14, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 13. And that's just to name a few. But Genesis 22, it would also be on that list because this is probably... In my mind, one of the most important, just at the very least, a very important, but in my mind, probably one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. And just to be 100% real, you know what? Honestly, I, I, I can't, uh, I don't think I can do this chapter justice, to tell you the truth. You know, sometimes I think it would just be better for us if I would sit down and we would just tune in, you know, a, a great pastor and listen to him teach, you know, especially in a chapter like this. You know, if we would just look to these, these men of God that, have, if, that are so eloquent when they teach, so inspired by the Holy Spirit when they teach, it would be such a blessing. I mean, what can I bring to this chapter that hasn't already been commented on by just tremendous men of God, just pillars of the faith, you know? But, uh, you know, sometimes I think, who am I? <laughs> who am I to take the word of God upon my lips? And, and this is a chapter that gives me, you know, fear and trembling when, when I look into it. But, you know, that's what we're here gathered together today to do, is to look at this chapter. So, you know, in spite of me and my uh, frailties and my inadequacies, you know, we're going to press on. And, uh, you know, through God's grace and strength, we'll press on and dig into this chapter. Anyway, this chapter, it gives us the Father's perspective of the crucifixion. 
Psalm 22, Psalm 69, it gives us a view of the crucifixion from the son's point of view, right? Isaiah 53 is a view of the crucifixion from the bystander's point of view. And, and you know, it's interesting to me is the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're very brief in their description of the crucifixion. Each of them say, you know, something like, I mean, a little bit of variation, but each of them say, uh, they crucified him. And you know, that's about all the description. The one place where we get a glimpse of the father's heart uh, and his emotions in regards to offering his son is right here in Genesis 22. First John 4, 9 through 10 says, in this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, the word propitiation, if you're reading the NIV or the New Living Translation, it doesn't say propitiation. And personally, I think that's a problem for those translations because you miss out on just the richness of the word here. The word propitiation it has a, a twofold meaning, right? The first is it speaks of atonement for our sins, right? Not just the covering for our sins, like in the Old Testament, you know, when the sacrifice was offered and it covered the sins of the people. No, this propitiation, it speaks of cleansing our sins, how we're cleansed through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his acceptable sacrifice. And then the second fold meaning of that word, and probably the most important part of the definition of this word, it carries with it an idea of God's wrath being satisfied when it was poured out on Jesus while he hung there on the cross. Christ was made sin for us, and God's righteous indignation was satisfied when it was poured out on him as he bore our penalty, the just in place paying the debt and the penalty for the unjust. It was a him for me trade. He took my sins. He gave me his righteousness. And what do we read in the Bible? We're no longer enemies of God, having made peace through the blood of his cross, it says Colossians 1.20. For he himself is our peace, Ephesians 2.14. He gave himself that we might experience the love of God, that we might come into a right uh, relationship with the Father, that we might be reconciled with the Father. Well, Genesis 22 verse 1 says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. Now, I love this verse because it says it came to pass. And, and yeah, you've heard what the old preacher said. It came to pass, didn't come to stay. But you know what? What I love about this verse is it says it came to pass after these things. Well, after what things? It came to pass after what? Well, it came to pass after 50 years of God patiently, gently bringing Abraham to this place where he could exercise just tremendous, great faith. 
And this is so encouraging to me because God had so many opportunities just to wash his hands and be done with Abraham, but he didn't. Abraham is the father of faith, and yet he lapsed in his faith. Abraham's he's called the friend of God, and yet what does he do? He fails, and, and when, you know, the, it's time to just really kind of cling to the Lord, what does he, he kind of just, you know, turns and goes his own way, leaves God behind, you know? Um, he's also called a prophet, but what Abraham really was, was he was a liar. Abraham sincerely gave his heart to the Lord, and even though he failed, God patiently and lovingly walked with Abraham through this journey, ending up into the place where Abraham would be able, without reservation, exercise amazing faith. God works slowly in Abraham's life. And the way he actually works in our life, right? He works slowly in Abraham's life the way he works in our life. Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, until we become the men and women of God that he wants us to be. It says, God tested Abraham. God is not testing Abraham to find out what he's made of. God knows everything and he can't learn anything. He already knows where Abraham is in regards to um, his faith, in regards to his love for God. But God is testing Abraham not to, um, you know, reveal his faith, but to produce his faith, to show him the faith that I'm sure Abraham actually never thought he ever had. Satan tests us to destroy us. But God tests us to bring out the best within us. Sometimes the most difficult tests we'll experience in this life, actually they, they come from the Lord. Because with those difficult tests, he does great things, right? He, he shows us, you know, and he produces in us great faith. And what comes with difficult tests comes great blessings, and the Bible teaches us, this is, this is what I firmly believe with my whole heart. The Bible teaches us that we're to be good stewards of the things that God gives us. We're to be good stewards of our finances. We're to be uh, good stewards of our ability. We're to be good stewards of our time. But I also think God entrusts trials to us, and we're to be good stewards of those trials. Remember John chapter 9, Jesus comes out of the temple with the boys, and, you know, the disciples, they see the uh, blind man there. And they say to him, hey, Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents said he was born blind. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I believe God entrusts trials to us. There are people that are watching from the wings that, you know, God wants to do something in their lives, but they wouldn't be able to endure that trial. So what does the God do? He entrusts that trial to us, knowing that we can endure in him so that he may be glorified in their eyes. The people who are walking closest to the Lord are often tested greatly for his glory. Verse 2 then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering 
on one of the mountains of which I'll tell you. Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. This is interesting to me, right? Because Abraham actually had two sons, right? He loved them both. He had Ishmael. He had Isaac. He loved them both. But what we see here is the Holy Spirit. He's going to begin to paint a picture for us. He's going to paint this picture of the father offering his only son whom he loved. You know, in the New Testament, there's a couple of places where we actually see God speaking from heaven, right? One of the times is when he, uh, Jesus was being baptized, Matthew chapter 3, 17. And it says, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was up there with Peter, James, and John. And Jesus, he began to shine with the, uh, the glory that he's had from all eternity. It just began coming out as bright as the sun, it says. And we, we read that the Father's voice came from heaven then, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. John chapter 3, verse 25, and chapter 5, verse 20, we read, the Father loves the Son. In Genesis 22, the Holy Spirit begins, you know, painting these brush strokes of this picture of the Father offering His Son, Jesus, as a sacrifice for all mankind. It's also interesting to note, and if, if you take notes, you know, take this down, write it in your Bible, circle it, make a mental note, whatever works for you. But this is the first place in the Bible that we read the word love. 21 chapters prior, God could have said so much about love 21 chapters ago. You know, up to this point, the love Adam had for um, Eve, the love Abraham has for Sarah, but he reserves this word love to highlight the love the Father has for the Son. And it continues that verse says, go to the land of Moriah. Moriah literally means chosen by God. It could, it could mean Jehovah is shown or Jehovah reveals. Um, all of those are acceptable translation of what that means. Mount Moriah, if you don't know this, here's an interesting fact. Mount Moriah happens to be the same place that Solomon built the temple. 2 Chronicles 3.1. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David prepared, uh, had prepared on the uh, threshing floor of Ornan. Ornan, the Jebusites, got to get my teeth together. God instructs Abraham to offer his son there as a burnt offering, right? The Hebrew word translated offer, it literally means to lift up. So God tells Abraham to lift up his son as a burnt offering. And a burnt offering, of course, is that offering that's totally consumed. Nothing is held back. Now, that whole area there where the, the temple mount is um, built, that whole area is Mount Moriah. But I don't think that Abraham uh, you know, stopped and offered his son where the temple was built. Now, the temple, it was built like we just read, First uh, Chronicles 21. It was built where David offered a sacrifice on the threshing floor of uh, 
Onan. Remember, David numbered the, the uh, people of Israel and brought a plague upon the people. And so David offered the sacrifice there on the threshing floor and the plague ceased. The reason I don't think Abraham offered Isaac in that location, but in a different location, is in those days, people would sacrifice on the highest part of the mountain, right? Not down below the peak. That wasn't a common practice. And the highest part of Mount Moriah is just north of where the Temple Mount is, where the temple was. The highest part of Mount Moriah is just north on a, on a rock outcropping called Golgotha. It's called Calvary. That's where I think Abraham offered his son. I don't think Abraham would have stopped short of the highest place to offer his son. And it's interesting. We also re read in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 10 through 12 in Leviticus. Boy, can't wait to get into Leviticus. That's such an exciting book. But Leviticus chapter 1, verses 10 through 11 it tells us that the burnt offering was to be killed north of the altar. And that's just such a picture of Jesus and his sacrifice there on, on Calvary. Again, the Holy Spirit painting this picture of the Father offering his Son. Jesus was crucified. He was lifted up north of the altar at a place called Calvary, which is the highest part of Mount Moriah, where Abraham offers his Son, whom he loved, as a type of the Father who have offered Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, whom he loved. Verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, rose and went to the place which God had told him. Now, it's been, we mentioned this last week, but it's been 30 years approximately, just of silence. There's no uh, record of God speaking to um, Abraham for the last 30 years. You know, Abraham's just living his life. He's loving the Lord. He's walking with the Lord. He's worshiping the Lord. He's just been going about his business as usual. Again, loving the Lord, worshiping the Lord, you know, offering sacrifices to the Lord. And then Abraham hears from God. Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. I mean, just think it through for a minute. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. How would you respond? Abraham responded in obedience, it says. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. Such obedience. You know what he did? He woke up early so he could get an early start to being obedient. You know, it's one thing to claim to want to hear from the Lord in any given uh, situation, you know, to trust in his word. And it's another thing to be obedient to his word when you hear it. Abraham is not going to delay. He's not going to reason through things. He's not going to think things over. You know what he's going to do? He's going to act. He's learned over the years what the Lord's voice sounds like. And he responds to it. How familiar are you with the Lord's voice? Do you know the sweetness of the Lord's voice when he speaks to you? 
You know, if you're not sure if you can discern the Lord's voice um, when he speaks, you know, I want you to know that you can develop that ability to know his voice. It, it, it comes through spending time with him, spending quality time in the word, spending time in prayer, you know, um, becoming a man or a woman of the word or the prayer. That's how we develop that ability to, to hear the Lord, to just sit in his presence. And I've noticed in the Bible, man, the men and women God uses mightily in the Bible. And I've also noticed that the men and women of God that we look up to in our day and age, they're men and women who have devoted themselves to the word of God and to prayer. Boy, I just, just want to encourage you, come out to prayer. Be part of every Bible study. If we'll give ourselves to the Lord completely in an effort to get to know him intimately, you know what? He'll share his heart with us. He'll speak to us, you know, and he'll use us greatly. One of my favorite verses, Daniel eleven thirty two. 32, the second half of that verse says, the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And I believe the Lord wants to use each one of us more than what we want to be used. I believe he wants to reveal himself to us more than what, the way than we want him to reveal himself to us. The question is always, how much do you want it? How much do you want to be used? How much revelation do you want to have of him? You know, we continue on and we read Abraham says he took two of his young men with him. And again, each brush stroke that we see here in this chapter, painting this picture in detail with wonderful accuracy. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. Isaac is being offered with two men going with him. Jesus is crucified between two thieves, one on his right and one on his left. And tell you the truth, these two thieves that were crucified with Jesus, they're actually very intriguing to me. Because both of them were just as close to Jesus as the other. And yet one receives and one rejects. One dies and is ushered into paradise. And the other dies and, you know, is headed and separated from God, headed for torment. We see this played out all the time. You know, you see two people, they come to the same Bible study. One is touched by the Lord and is lifted up. He receives the word of God and he's just filled with joy and his life is changed. You know, the other rejects the word and he just continues on his, in his path of sin. One's headed for heaven. The other one's headed for damnation. And it's so sad, so sad to me when people refuse to come to the Father through the Son that they might receive forgiveness of sins. It's so sad to see people insist on rejecting the love of God. And again, we continue to read in Isaac, his son, uh, and he split the wood for the burnt offering. You know, and, I, and my heart just cries out, what, what do you think that looked like? What do you think that looked like? Abraham splitting the wood with Isaac, the very wood that Abraham is going to lay Isaac on for that burnt offering. And it says they arose and went to the place of which God had told them. Before 
uh, it was go to the mountain of which I tell you. Now it's past tense. Now it's, you know, they arose and went to the place where God had told them. It's past tense. It would appear that Abraham now knows the exact place that God wants him to offer Isaac up. And it's a 50-mile donkey ride from where they're at to Mount Moriah. Verse 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. For three days, Isaac has been as good as dead in Abraham's heart. Abraham is committed to carrying out God's instructions. And it must have been, you know, this journey for three days must have been a very quiet journey. Three days of just quietness. And after three days, it says, Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw that place where he was to offer a son. And then Abraham realized he knows now the time has come. And again, put your uh, self in Abraham's shoes. Just try to experience that emotion, what it must have felt like for the father offering his son. Verse 5, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we'll come back to you. The word translated lad here, you know, it gives us this idea that Isaac was kind of a young kid. But again, rabbinical tradition is that Isaac is 33 years old when he's offered for a sacrifice. You think that's a coincidence? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. But hey, this is another thing we want to note. This is the first time we read the word worship in the Bible. Again, 21 chapters prior to this one. You know, God could have written about worship, Adam and Eve's worship. He could have written about Abel's worship. He could have written about uh, Abraham's worship up to the point. But he reserves this word worship to highlight the worship here in offering the only son as a sacrifice. And we see Abraham's faith here. He says, we will go and worship. You know, in, in that culture, they knew that worship was accompanied by the shedding of blood, right? And Isaac hears this as well as these two men. You know, Abraham says, we will go and worship and we will come back. And when Abraham said, we will go and worship and we will come back, Abraham was speaking of something God was testing him in. All Abraham knew was that God's promises revolved the future of his people revolved around Isaac. And God wanted Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham didn't understand, you know, how those th- two things were supposed to work together. But he was determined to obey. Whether he could understand God's plan or not, whether he knew what God was doing or not, he's determined to obey. I mean, what faith? We read in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense." Not only did Abraham believe that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead, but Isaac was to be a burnt offering. 
Abraham believed that God would be able to raise Isaac from the ashes. Verse 6, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. Again, how do you think Abraham felt just laying that wood on his son? Just as Isaac carried the wood for the burnt offering, which he would uh, be offered upon, so too Jesus carries the cross for the sacrifice upon which he would be nailed. Abraham carried the fire and the knife. The implements of sacrifice are carried by the Father. And it would speak of this holy, righteous indignation that Jesus endured on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And boy, I just, you just think about our precious, sinless Savior was made sin for us. I mean, I don't even know what that looks like. What, how do you describe that? He took upon himself the sins of the world, those ugly, vile sins that you could not bear to see. He took them upon himself. He took the sins of the pornographer, of the murderer, of the child molester. He bore those sins, every vile disgusting sin that you have no capacity even to imagine was heaped upon our Savior. And God, who is too pure, to, too righteous to look upon sin, he turns his face from the Son, and Jesus, for the first time of all eternity past, you know, was separated from the Father. So, we would never have to endure that wrath and separation. Boy, talk about what love, huh? Verse 7, But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? You know, Isaac, he says, Hey, Dad, you know, here's the fire. Here's the wood. Aren't you forgetting something? You know, where's the sacrifice? And again, this is the first time in the Bible that we read the word lamb. 21 chapters prior to this one, God could have written about a lamb as a sacrifice, but he reserves the word lamb to highlight the lamb of God, the lamb provided by God that will be offered for the sacrifice of the sins of the world. Verse 8, And Abraham said, Son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. The literal Hebrew here is God will provide himself the lamb. Right? It doesn't say, the literal Hebrew doesn't say God will provide for himself a lamb or he'll provide a lamb for himself. It doesn't say that. It says God will provide himself the lamb. We see God in Christ Jesus hanging on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.19 said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And isn't it interesting? The first place you see the word lamb in the New Testament is John 1.29. You know, it's never used in the Gospel of Matthew. It's never used in the Gospel of Mark. It's never used in the Gospel of Luke. The first time we see 
the word lamb, it's in the gospel of John. And it's an answer to Isaac's question. Where's the lamb? John the Baptist says in, in that day seeing Jesus, John 129, he declares, behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. In the book of Revelation, John says in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's Revelation 5, 6 and Revelation 13, 8. Jesus Christ sacrificed on the cross for our sins, for your sins, for my sins, was not an afterthought. It was God's answer. It was God's plan to, to bring forgiveness to mankind way before Genesis, all the way eternity past. It says that Jesus in Revelation says that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And he's going to bear the marks of his crucifixion for eternity future, right? As a constant reminder to each one of us of his great love towards us. And we continue on, it says, so the two of them went together, right? This is the second time we see this phrase. And I think Isaac, he understands now what's going on. He gets it. Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together unless they are agreed? And the question is phrased in such a way that it demands a ne negative answer. Of course, two can't walk together unless they're, they're agreed. You know, and I think we see in this verse, again, Isaac, he's getting it. He's understanding what's going on. In verse 9, it says, Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now, Isaac is 30, 33 years old now. Just imagine in your mind. Isaac's 30, 33 Abraham's 130, 133 years old. You know, if I was 33 year old, years old and my 133-year-old dad came up to me and said, son, we're going to offer you today as a burnt sacrifice. Why don't you turn around so I can tie your hands? You know, I'd say, think again, grandpa. We're going to offer you as a burnt sacrifice. You know, Isaac, he could have easily resisted his dad. He could have easily resisted the father, but Isaac consents. He yields to his father's wishes, just as Jesus willingly went to the cross to lay down his life for each one of us. John chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus says, as the father knows me, even so I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Drop down 17 and 18. Therefore, my father knows me because I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. This command I've received from the father. You know, I think Isaac is yielding to this. He's consenting to this. He knows what's going on, right? Put yourself in Abraham's shoes again for just a moment, though. What was Abraham feeling when he arrived to the place which God had told him? There's five things here that we read in this verse. He arrived to the place that God has told him. He built an altar by himself, knowing that that's what he was to do. 
and he placed the wood in order and he bound Isaac, his son, and Abraham laid him on the altar upon the wood. You know, how, how, what did that look like? This 133-year-old man taking this 33-year-old man and gently laying him, lovingly laying him down on this pile of wood that he's about to set on fire. I imagine each one of these activities were done with great sobriety, solemnness. It was done slowly and deliberately. And Abraham's heart, I imagine, was just breaking tears running down his cheeks. What was going on in Abraham's heart as he's building that altar? I mean, just imagine the father's heart when he offered his son up for your sins. The son whom he loved so deeply, he willingly offered because of his great love for you. May God help us gain a right perspective of the cross and his love for us. God help us. Verse 10, and Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. Again, try to imagine the scene and whose heart is more broken here? Is it Abraham's as he's raising the knife, looking away, not desiring to see his son's face, to look in Isaac's eyes? Is it Isaac who's looking into his father's uh, eyes, you know, seeing these tears streaming down his face, crying in just heartbreaking agony? Or, or is it Isaac? With, his eyes are closed. Maybe his eyes are closed, anticipating the pain of that knife plunging into his body and Abraham seeing that on his face. I mean, just place your face, place yourself in um, the situation. Maybe it's not Abraham that's hurting the most. Maybe it's not Isaac hurting the most. Maybe it's God the Father who's experiencing the most amount of pain, knowing that the day is coming and the, when this scene is going to be played out for real, when he's going to offer up his son. And it'll be his son, Jesus Christ, whom he loves, who he cannot bear to look at in his great moment of pain and agony because He's been made sin, right? We often say, Lord, if you love me, would you please give me this job? Lord, if you love me, would you please give me this person to marry? Lord, if you love me, would you please give me this house? Lord, if you love me, would you please let me take this vacation? Lord, if you love me, would you please just provide for my retirement? You know? This is what John says. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. God demonstrates his own love towards us, Paul writes Romans 5.8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We should never put anything else alongside what God has done for us in an attempt to have God prove his love for us. He's given us his very best to show us how great his love for us. God, help us not to take this sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God, help us not to take the cross for granted as we do. And, and I'm speaking for myself. You know, I can't speak for you, but I suspect you're like me and that, you know what, we take it for granted. 
We talk about the cross. We talk about crucifixion like it's nothing. But you know what? Our salvation, even though it's free, costs God everything. It's cost, cost Jesus everything. God help us. May we never forget what occurred there at the cross. You know, so many churches today, they've abandoned the message of the cross. They've abandoned the message of the blood of Christ, you know, of sin and redemption. Because, you know what, uh, they, they see it as, you know, those things are gross. Those things turn people off. Talking about the, the blood, that's offensive. The cross is offensive. So they don't talk about those things. Never tell somebody they're a sinner. I've had people tell me that. I've had people tell me that. You know what? Preaching the cross the way you do, Gary, that's emotional abuse. You should never tell anybody they're a sinner. And believe me, that's come from believers, so-called believers. You know what? The cross, Christ shed blood, the forgiveness for our sins, his redemption, the, the sacrifice that was offered that we could be forgiven, that is the good news. Without them, we have nothing. Without them, we have no hope. Spurgeon said, a bloodless gospel is a powerless gospel. It's Jesus' blood shed for our sin. That's what has the power to cleanse us and to save us. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the ladder. Do anything to him. <coughs> Excuse me. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, uh, your only son from me. It says that Abraham feared God. To fear God means to reverence him as sovereign, to trust him implicitly, and to obey him without question. True worshipers of the Lord hold nothing back. They obediently give him what he asked for and trusting him to provide, right? And I just want to just say, boy, isn't that exactly what you long for in your Christian walk with the Lord? I mean, don't you just long for that type of obedience to be that type of worshiper? I do. And at this point, I believe God now has taken Abraham closer to the Father's heart, even more than Abraham would ever know or ever understand. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it was glad, John 8, 56. And I believe that this event here, offering the Son, you know, in obedience, offering the Son, this is what Jesus is talking about, referring to this passage. And we see that God, you know, it says, yeah, it says, what did it say? I got to scroll back up here. <laughs> it says, uh, for God says, since, you know, now I know that you fear God since you've uh, not withheld your son. God knows where Abraham's faith is. When the angel of the Lord says, now I know that you fear God since you've not withhold your son, your only son from me. You know, that wasn't a revelation to God. It wasn't like God was saying, Okay, all right. You know, I, I guess you really do reverence me, you know? I wasn't sure, but that's great. I'm glad to know it, you know? God knows Abraham's heart. But now Abraham knows his own heart and how deep his commitment is to the Lord. And that was the purpose 
of this test, this trial. I want you to notice something real quick. Look back at verse 11. Who's talking now? It's the angel of the Lord. Well, who's that? We've talked about this before. It's a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ. And who does the angel say Abraham fears in verse 12? And who is Isaac being offered to in verse 12? Well, it's God. The answer to those questions is God. And the angel Lord said, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The angel says, you know, you're offering Isaac to God. You haven't withheld him from me. The me there is the angel of the Lord who is God. Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, appears as the angel of the Lord who is Jehovah. Verse 13, then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. The ram is not the sacrifice that Abraham uh, spoke of earlier. He said God will provide himself the lamb. He didn't say God will provide a ram for the sacrifice. In God's grace, he provided a ram as a substitution for Isaac. In God's grace, he provided the Lamb of God as a substitution for you and for me. Abraham offered up his son as a sacrifice. God the Father also offered up his son. Paul writes in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. What was that like, though, for Isaac to see that substitute that substitutionary sacrifice. What was it like for Isaac to see that ram bleeding out there on the wood pile, being set on fire, being burned up by the fire? You know, it must have been just this tremendous, quiet moment of thanksgiving. You know, we need to respond with the same quiet reverence, the same thanksgiving in our heart, the same solemnity, You know, when we look upon the cross and we see our substitutionary sacrifice hanging there, bleeding out, breathing his last breath, declaring it is finished, paid in full. God, help us to understand the wickedness of our sin and the depth of his love. Not so that we can walk around feeling like, woe is me, you know what, I'm such a sinner. No, but so we can love much. Because those who are forgiven much, love much. Verse 14, And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Abraham calls the name of God here, Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. And I believe Abraham is beginning, at the very least he's beginning, to understand that he's acting out prophecy. I, I, I don't think it's just dawning on him. I think he's kind of slowly come to that conclusion where he understands now that he's been acting out prophecy. And when he says, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided, he's referring to this yet future sacrifice of sin that's going to be offered by God the Father. Verse 18 And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven 
and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of your enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God again confirms his promise to Abraham, but this time he adds that Abraham's offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies. In other words, God is giving Abraham victory over his enemies. And you know, even now, as, as I just read verse 18, look at it. Boy, I just saw it for the first time now as I read it. You know what? Obedience brings blessing. In your seed, all the nations shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Man, obedience brings blessing. That's a theme throughout the Bible. Verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now this is, one of the, this is one of the reasons I think this chapter is so beautiful, so amazing. Tell you the truth, verse 19. If you read this verse literally, only Abraham comes down from the mountain to where those two young men were, right? So if you read this verse literally, Where's Isaac? Well, Isaac is up on the mountain. And I'm sure he probably came down with, with Abraham. But again, if you read it literally, Isaac is still up on the mountain. Only Abraham comes down. And why I find that interesting is because we don't see Abraham again until we, we, we read through a couple more chapters. And then we see, sorry, I said Abraham. We don't see Isaac again for a couple more chapters until we see him receiving a Gentile bride. We'll see him running out to meet her. And you know what? It just speaks of Jesus Christ. After his sacrifice, we don't see him. When we see him again, it's when he'll be receiving his Gentile bride. Speaking of the rapture of the church, where we'll meet him in in the air. You know what? That's the next thing on the prophetic calendar. Boy, you look at what's going on around the world, all around us. You know what? It could be today. Verse 20, now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham saying, indeed, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor. Huz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother. You know, initially they had a hard time coming up with names. So there's Huz, there's Buzz, right? Uh, Kemuel, the father of Aram, and then they hook up with all these other names. She said, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, Bethuel, and Bethuel begot, uh, begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was uh, Ruma, also bore Teba, Gaham, Talhash, and uh, this other guy, girl whatever. What I think is important to notice in this lineage is, is we see Rebecca, Isaac's future wife being born here to um, uh, Bethuel. Okay. So, you know what, if we just close up our Bibles and, and just think through a couple of things, here's the lessons 
that we can find in this chapter. I think there's five things in this chapter that are worth walking away with. Faith obeys, and it obeys completely. Faith obeys, and it obeys without delay. Faith surrenders. It surrenders everything to God without holding anything back. Faith trusts and looks for the Lord to provide that which is needed. And true worship is costly. True worship costs us something. Back 1 Chronicles 21, boy, just the story of David. You know, he, he makes the sacrifice there on the threshing floor of Onan. And Onan, he's just like, hey, you know what? Uh, well, David, he just starts to barter with him about sell me the land and sell me the oxen, sell me the cart. And Onan says, hey, take it. It's yours. It's my pleasure just to give it to the king. And David says, no, I will not offer anything to the Lord that doesn't cost me. Worship is costly. It costs us our time. You know what? As we give our life to Christ, sometimes it's going to cost us friends. You know, I've been in part of the world where it costs you your family. And again, I've been part of the world where people have received Christ and it's nearly cost them their life. For some people, not that I personally have knowledge of, but for some people, it does cost their life. I remember one time in a refugee uh, camp baptizing this Muslim guy, received Christ. Next day, his throat is cut. He survived. But you know what? Worship is costly. You know what? I don't have to be afraid of giving my life to Christ because he gave his life for me. I don't have to be afraid to give my life to Christ and surrender all that I have for him because for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I go to be with that one that gave himself that I might enjoy a relationship with him. Boy, let us have that in sight as we walk through our day, as we do our business, as we raise our children, as we come to church and worship him. You know what? We're worshiping the sovereign king that has given everything, everything, so that we might come into a right relationship with him. Boy, it just blows me away. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for your word. Lord, and Lord, I recognize that, you know, I'm inadequate to, to teach this chapter by a whole lot. But Lord, I just pray you would be speaking to our hearts, Lord. Moving in our hearts, Lord. Drawing us closer to you. Filling us with your spirit, Lord. And, and giving us an understanding of the walk you want us to have with you, the relationship you want us to have with you, what we're missing out on because we settle for less, Lord. God, forgive us, draw us to yourself. Lord, for anyone out there that's not, that, that doesn't know you, Lord, that hasn't yet surrendered their life to you, Lord, I pray you'd be speaking to them and that they would know that they could just right now, wherever they're at, say, God, would you forgive me of my sins? I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I believe that Christ shed his blood on the cross, and I believe it's that blood that cleanses me from my sins. And I believe that he was dead, buried, and on the third day he rose again. Father God, would you forgive me?
give me your Holy Spirit, fill me with your Holy Spirit, and give me the power to walk with you. Lord, I just pray if there's anybody out there that would, would pray that prayer, that they would understand that, that you're meeting them right now, that you're hearing them, and you're pleased with them, and you're going to do a work in their life, a miraculous work that they've never, ever imagined before, Lord. Give them the power to live for you, Lord Jesus. I ask it in your name. And Father God, I do pray that you would bless Calvary Chapel of Truckee. Lord, you'd bless the ministries here. You'd bless the men. You'd bless the women. You'd bless the young uh, couples, the young families. You'd bless the kids, Lord, that we would be a people that is committed to you, sold out for you, on fire for you, wanting to share your good news, share your love with the people around us, Lord. Would you make us those type of people? Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey, if you uh, ask Christ in, into your heart, give me a call here at the office. Let's talk. Let me get a Bible in your hands. Don't want anything from you. Answer questions, whatever questions you may have, and just help you along this new uh, relationship you have with Jesus Christ. God bless you, Calvary Chapel Truckee. I, I love you guys. Looking forward to seeing you Sunday. Have a good night.